Yeah, you're on out there. <laughs> um, pastor, yes, pastor, we're, we're about to start. Just, you know, accountability, man, come on. I'm just kidding. You got to love when we got to call our pastor over because he's fellowshipping too much. <laughs> Time to sit down. All right. Good morning, Gateway. Great to see everybody this morning. Welcome all of you watching us online as well. We're so happy you're here to join us to worship the Lord and to be together and sharing community. Happy to be here? Isn't this great? Come on, guys. We should be excited to be in the body of Christ to celebrate the Lord this morning, especially coming after our Resurrection Sunday last week. God is good, and we're able to fellowship together. And speaking of sharing in community, we have some opportunities this week for you to do so in different capacities. Uh, this coming Friday, just as a reminder, we are having Secret Church here this Friday night. Um, it's that six-hour Bible study that David Platt does uh, this year, doing a verse-by-verse study on Jonah. Uh, just to make you aware, we have received capacity. We've maxed out as far as uh, having enough workbooks. However, this is a big however, we're looking to get some more books in, so there's still opportunities for you to sign up and join us, um, even if we run out of books, even to attend, take notes, but we're doing our very best to get additional uh, Jonah workbooks sent in. Uh, there's a wait list on the sign-up page at gatewaybaptist.com under news and events of Secret Church where you can sign up uh, just to get your name in the hat in case there, we do get some more in, but we still ask you to come. Um, many people come and just take their own notes or don't even use a book at all. Uh, but it's a great opportunity this Friday to fellowship. Starts at 6 p.m., goes to midnight. Woohoo! It's very fun. We love it. I love it. This is, I mean, I, we've done it many, many years now. Uh, just to make you aware, those that have signed up, it starts at 6. We are providing snacks. Snacks. Not supper. So we ask you to eat a little bit, but we have good snacks. We do. We have fruit, a lot of different sugar stuff, caffeine, coffee, sodas, water. A lot of stuff to get us six hours through. So uh, it's a wonderful night of fellowship to be together. All right. Fathers and sons, dad-son backpacking trip is uh, Friday, April 28th through Saturday, April 29th. Um, it's almost to capacity. You can still have an opportunity to sign up if interested. All the details and registration are on our website. And lastly, um, another community-wide opportunity, guys, with the, uh, the Bible Reading Marathon is taking place in a few weeks. Uh, the same week of the National Day of Prayer. Our own Dale Hathaway is helping head that up. And uh, there's plenty of spots to uh, sign up. Um, I was able to sign up this past week for the Thursday portion, which is reading portions of the Old Testament wherever you decide to go. We're just declaring the Word of God over our community um, throughout those three days. And there's plenty of sign-ups for Friday and Saturday where you could go down to his vessel um, downtown at the train station to be able to read the New Testament orally there with the schedule. It's a wonderful opportunity. We've done it for many years. And uh, so please take the opportunity to go and sign up. The, uh, the website and all the details are also on our uh, news and events page on our blog. Just a great time as the body of Christ to come together and to declare the word of God over that weekend. All right, well, we could ask you to please stand as we prepare our hearts to worship the Lord this morning through song. I'm going to be reading this morning from Psalms chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. 
Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Let us exalt his name together this morning.
Chains are released 
before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention that he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also having obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who has given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Church, this is why we're gathered today. We're gathered today to the praise of his glorious grace. We are here today, God, to give you glory, that all glory, all honor, all praise is due to you. And Lord, we praise you that we've just sung, Lord, yet not I, but through Christ 
in me. Lord, we're so grateful, so grateful for the gift of Christ to us, Lord. So we're just full this morning. Lord, we just want to bring some petitions before you this morning, Lord, as we think about some of the ministries in our church and the work that you're doing. Lord, we're so grateful for the college ministry, Lord, that you are raising up. Thank you for Seth and Megan, Lord, and their love for, for these college students. Lord, I pray you would be moving among them. Lord, I pray that college students, Lord, would be confessing and repenting, Lord, believing and walking faithfully with you and growing in their faith, Lord. Would you just grow that ministry? Lord, we also thank you for, for Foe Smart, Lord, his ministry to the guys at Safety Net, Lord, his faithfulness over the years to reach out to these young men. Lord, would you continue to work through him? Lord, would you bless these young men? Would you bring them to Christ? Lord, that's our ultimate prayer. Lord, we pray, Lord, also for our nation, for our government leaders, Lord, from the president, Lord, down to governors, down to mayors, Lord, at every level. Lord, you have given government for our good. Lord, we pray that those leaders, Lord, would be instruments in your hands. Lord, they would submit to you. Lord, that's our prayer. That's what we're asking. So, Lord, would you do that today? Lord, we also pray, Lord, around the world, we want to pray, Lord, for Kenya this morning. Lord, we want to pray that the Lord will bring peace to that nation. Lord, with so much fighting and rioting and violence, Lord, that that would cease. Lord, we also want to pray, Lord, that you'll provide, Lord, for the, for the people in that country for their daily needs, Lord, where there's such great, great need. And, Lord, we also pray for the believers in Kenya. Lord, that you just move with your Holy Spirit, that your gospel would go forward, Lord, that many would come to love and to know you. Lord, we also want to thank you for your faithfulness to our church, Lord, your faithfulness in so many ways. Lord, spiritually, your faithfulness, Lord, to bring new life, to grow others up that are walking with you, Lord, to add to our numbers. Lord, you're so good. We thank you for your provision, Lord, financially, Lord, that we have all that we need. Just pray, Lord, you'd continue to, to give us a great, gracious and generous spirit in our giving. We thank you, Lord, for your provision. And Lord, we just thank you for Grady. Lord, thank you for his love for you, his love for your word, for his faithful teaching week in and week out. I pray this week, Lord, as he teaches, Lord, your Holy Spirit would give him exactly what he needs to say. And Lord, that all the things that he's prepared, Lord, would, would be brought forth today. And Lord, we pray, too, that you would help us, Lord, to hear today, Lord, to see with our eyes, Lord, to believe with our hearts the word that you have for each of us today. We ask all this in the great and grand and glorious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And the people said, Amen. Amen. As soon as the service is over, if you'll go pick up your kids in the blue hallway in the gym and then come back in to enjoy the time of fellowship with one another. We'll find 1 Peter chapter 4 in your copy of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning as we continue our year-long journey through 1 Peter. Now, as we're finding 1 Peter 4, I want to ask you this morning, when in your life have you most benefited from the love of other Christians? 
Do you think through your lifetime, when in your life have you most benefited from the love of other Christians? When you knew you belonged and you had other people investing in you, coming alongside you and pursuing your good. And perhaps a similar question would be, when in your life have you most benefited from Christian hospitality? When other believers included you in their life and included you into their homes and brought you along on life's journey, you knew you belonged, that you were finding encouragement and joy and help as you walked life with someone else. Let's flip those questions now. How are you intentionally loving other believers? What are you doing to intentionally pursue other Christians in the church? And how are you doing opening your life and your home, inviting other people into your home and inviting other people to walk this journey of life with you? Friends, tragically, there's so many believers, even here at Gateway, who feel lonely, who are not sure they belong, who've really never had others come alongside them and move beyond the southern greeting of, hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And move on on a Sunday morning. They've never really had people who've poured into them and shared life together and had other people's homes open to where they've shared life with other people. And tragically, so many believers have never intentionally pursued going beyond our southern niceties to actually sharing life in true Christian community. Friends, this topic of love and hospitality in the church is exactly where Peter goes next in his letter. So I want to remind you where we are in Peter's letter since we have paused it last week for Easter. But two weeks ago, we had begun a new section of Peter's writing. And it covers in chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. It's one paragraph when Peter wrote this. And the whole theme of this section is the soon return of Jesus. Is the second coming of Christ. So just glance back up at chapter 4, verse 7. This is what we saw two weeks ago, just to remind you of where we are. Peter begins this section saying, The end of all things is at hand. The Christ is coming back and his return is imminent. Now in the verses that follow, in the rest of verse 7 through verse 11 here, there's five imperatives. There are five commands that follow of how we as Christians are to live in light of the imminent return of Christ. Now, we saw the first two of those last week, and those went together because they're about how we think. He says, The end of all things is a hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And so we saw two weeks ago that in light of the return of Jesus, we're to have disciplined thinking. We're to focus our minds and discipline our minds to think correctly about life, to think correctly about God's will. And the more we do that, the more we will find ourselves praying the will of God. But as he starts there, that prayerfulness, that introspection, that right thinking does not drive us to isolation. It does not drive us to withdrawal. Rather, it drives us out to one another. Because the more we think rightly about life, the more we think rightly about God's will here in verse 7, the more we will run to one another in Christian community. And that's exactly what Peter's going to show us in the next four verses. In verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 that we'll look at today and next week, the remaining commands all focus on how we as brothers and sisters in Christ relate to one another. Yes, the church is that important. The three of the five imperatives about how we live in the last days all deal with how we relate to one another and the church. Because what Peter is showing us is in the last days, God is calling us to live a one another type of life. With Christ coming back at any time, we're called to live a one another type of life. Now, there's a tendency in our culture, and friends, if we're honest, even here at Gateway, to talk about community, to be nice to one another, which is a good thing, but to not go as far as God calls us to go in truly having a one another type of life. And so as we read these verses this morning, I want you to be looking for how are we to live in light of the return of Christ. Everything we're going to see this morning in verses 8 and 9 comes from the end of all things is at hand, therefore be. It's all going to flow from that. So how are we to live in light of Christ's return? 
My friends, I want us to, to personalize this. I want to ask of myself and you ask of yourself, is this true of me? It's what Peter's telling us of how we're to live in light of the end times. Is this characterized my life? Could others say this of me? Would the Lord say this of me and of you? So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? That we have God's revelation to us of His will for us and who He is. We're reading out of the English Standard Version. We'll also have the words on the screen for you. Starting in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you've not hidden yourself from us. God, we're thankful you've not left your will a mystery for us. But you've spoken to us and you've revealed it to us and shown us right here in Scripture what you desire for our lives to be like. Lord, as we come to these verses, Lord, these are verses that are not hard to understand. Yet, Lord, we confess these are verses that are really hard to live out. These go against our sinful tendencies. These go against what our culture puts before us. And so, Lord, I ask for much grace for myself and for these precious brothers and sisters that you would, through your Holy Spirit, be stretching us and convicting us and growing us to be the type people you desire for us to be as we live in light at the end of things. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So how do we live in light of the return of Christ? Again, friends, the answer here is very straightforward to understand. But it's really difficult to live it out. So to help us wrestle with this text, I want to ask four questions of this text this morning, as we do sometimes, to help us unpack what Peter is telling us here, what God's will is for us. Again, be thinking as we look at each one of these, is this true for me? So question one here, what are we called to do in the last days? Here's a straightforward question. What are we called to do in the last days? Now, in verse 8, there's one command, one imperative that kind of encompasses both of the verses we just read. And that one command of what we're called to do is to keep loving one another. The command for us is to keep loving each other. Now, if you think, okay, this sounds familiar, it should. In fact, the very first command in Peter's letter was the same as this. Glance back at chapter 1, verse 22, because in 122, Peter tells us the same thing. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So the very first thing that Peter tells us in the letter is to love one another earnestly. And then we get here to the thinking about the end of all things is at hand. What are we to live? How are we to live? We're to have right thinking. And the first hour thing he tells us, go back to verse 8, keep loving one another earnestly. It's that important that he begins the book with this and he focuses even in our lives in the latter days on this command to love one another. Now let me remind you of our definition of love. If you've been around Gateway a while, hopefully you know this, you could probably say it by now. But for those new to Gateway, I want to make sure you understand this. And for all of us, I want to remind us because this is so different than what the culture teaches us. In Scripture, friends, love is not an emotion. Love is not a feeling. You don't fall into love or fall out of love. In Scripture, love is a choice that you make to give of yourself for the good of another. Love is a choice you make to give of yourself for the good of another person. It's a choice. It's a choice to pursue the good of another person. And that choice is costly. It takes giving of yourself, your time, your energy, your emotions, even your finances, because you're pursuing the good of another person. So what Peter is commanding us here is, above all, keep choosing to give of yourself for the good of one another. I want you to notice something here. This command to keep loving one another is in the present tense in the Greek. 
That means it's ongoing. It's not something you can do on a Sunday morning for an hour, check the box, and you've done, and you've fulfilled the, God's will for your life. There's not something you can come to an event once a year at church and fulfill God's will on this. This is choosing today to give of ourselves for the good of other people. It's choosing tomorrow to give of ourselves for the good of other believers. It's on Tuesday, choosing to give of ourselves for the good of others, and on and on we go. It's a daily intentionality in pursuing the good of other people. It's prioritizing a one another type of life. And here in particular, the one another are other believers. Keep loving one another, other believers in Christ. Now, yes, friends, we're to be kind to non-Christians. Yes, we're to love them too. Yes, we're to point them to Christ. That's all biblical, and there's many commands of that in Scripture. But Peter's focus here is on how we in the church relate to one another, to pursue Christian community in a shared life. Now, what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. We've seen it in the past, but I want to remind us of it. So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but, this, but especially to those who are the household of faith, to other people. And that's what Peter's saying here, too. In verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. This command to give of ourselves for the good of others is so important. Paul says, especially do it. Peter says it's above all. It is paramount. It's like high up on the things we need to be focusing on, which is no surprise of what Jesus said also. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and asks him, what's the greatest commandment in trying to trap Jesus? And you know what Jesus says back to him? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But notice what he does next. And a second is like it. You shall love. You shall choose to give of yourself for the good of another to your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on to tell us in verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Friends, we should always be seeking to do God's will. But as you're studying Scripture, which shows us God's will, and you come to terms like greatest, especially, above all, this is a call to take notice, to slow down, not just pass over this. This is something that we need to give great intentionality to in our daily lives. And yet, friends, again, this is not the norm in most of Western Christianity. There's a book I read years ago called Total Church that really helped me think through a lot of this. In this book, the author used an analogy that stuck with me in my mind. So picture if you were at, when you were a kid and you went to the circus. Have you ever seen a street act at Disney or somewhere else where you see a juggler juggling a lot of balls? And you can picture a guy with six or seven or eight balls all juggling them in the air. He said, that's a picture of how a lot of us live our lives. One ball is the church. One ball is our job. One, job's, one ball is our family and our kids' sports and all things we do. And we kind of juggle these things. But when life gets busy and life gets tough and we get stretched, what do we do? We have to drop some ball. And for us, the ball that gets dropped a lot is the pursuit of community. It's a shared life with one another. And the authors of this book say that's not how it should be. If you think about what the Scripture is saying, these above alls, the especiallys of Galatians 6, the above alls of verse 8 right here, he's saying this is a call to that ball needs to be the priority for us. This commitment to pursuing life with one another needs to be something that never gets dropped. This intentionality of loving other believers should never get dropped no matter what else is going on. So first question, what are we called to do in the last days? in the midst of all the juggling of life, to make sure we're prioritizing loving one another, that we're prioritizing pursuing community with other believers. Question two for the morning. How practically do we do that? How do we love one another as we pursue 
community. Well, there's a lot that could be said about this, but Peter's going to show us two aspects of loving one another. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. These are two things that are important in the life of the body, but Scripture tells us many other things. But Peter's going to give us two this morning in these verses. One is reactive, how we respond to situations, and one is proactive, what we plan to do. So let's start with the reactive way we love other people, and quite simply, as we forgive. One way we show love for other people, one way we prioritize community is we forgive one another. The reality is, friends, none of us are fully sanctified. Every single one of us here battles sin and selfishness and pride every single day. That means as we live closely in community with each other, we will sin against each other. It's not a question of if we will sin against each other. It's a question of when we do and how we respond. I will inevitably sin against you. You will inevitably sin against me. We will inevitably sin against one another because we are still in the process of being sanctified and none of us are there yet. So how do we respond in community when we sin against one another? Well, he tells us there in verse 8, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers sins. Now, he's not saying you ignore the sin. He's not saying you pretend it's not there. We're called in Scripture to lovingly confront sin when we see it. We're called in Scripture to help each other see our sins and to repent and to pursue Christ's likeness. And that's a whole sermon for another day. But what here he's focusing on is what we do when people have offended us, when we, when we are sinned against. And he's saying, for the sake of pursuing love of other people, forgiving you yourself for the good of others, you forgive those who wrong you. Now, friends, this is not the first time Peter's thought about this topic of forgiveness. Remember, he's the one who asked Jesus the question about how much we forgive. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, he's going to ask Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, you've got to realize in the Jewish culture, if you forgave someone three times, that was considered sufficient. So he's being really pious here, right? I'm going to do it seven times. I'm going to more than double what's required of me in the culture of the time. And Jesus says, no. I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, the point is not we keep count and say to that person, hey, this is number 78, sorry, it's too late, you've, got, you've maxed out on here. The point of the 77 is we don't keep count. That we have an eagerness in our heart because we love other people to be quick to forgive them and to want to forgive them. I love how theologian Wayne Grudem described it. This, when he said, what he wrote just really hit me this week. He said, when love abounds in a fellowship of Christians... Many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. When love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But he gives a contrast. When love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. That if in the church we lack love, we view with suspicion things other people say, we misunderstand other people's actions, and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. If we want to pursue love and community in these latter days, we are called to be eager and excited about forgiving one another when we sin against one another. Now, this is not new to what we're coming across in Peter. Peter's been telling us this throughout the letter. If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he's already told us, put away to get rid of from our life all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. He told us back in chapter 3, verse 9, to do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, to bless for this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And now in verse 8 here, he's going to tell us, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So how do we love one another? How do we pursue the good of others? 
We are eager to forgive one another when we are sinned against. So before we move on, friends, I want to ask the question of myself and of you as well. Do we have such a love for one another that we are excited and eager to forgive one another when we are wronged? Or, in the words of Grudem, do we view people with suspicion? Do we misunderstand what people are doing? Is there conflict because we are lacking a love for other believers? Which is said of us. So that's the reactive part of how Peter tells us to love one another, but he gives us a proactive thing to do, and it raises the bar even higher. So what else do we do to show love for one another? The next thing he shows is we show hospitality. We show hospitality. Look at verse 9. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Okay, now what does it mean to show hospitality? To show hospitality means you open up your life and your home to bring people into it. It's to open up your life and your home to bring others along. You're opening your home to have other people in your home. You're walking life with other people, and you're inviting people to walk this journey of life with you. Now, when the early church was practicing hospitality, there was a huge emphasis on people staying in your home because there was no ends that were really suitable or safe. So they encouraged people to have believers from other cities who were traveling or on mission to stay with you. But it was so much more than that. Hospitality in the New Testament church was more than overnight guests. It was opening their homes to share meals. It was having people over for fellowship. It was a shared community of life together. Now remember, friends, in the early church, they didn't meet on campuses like this. The early church met in homes. So the Bible studies were in someone's home. The Lord's Supper was taken in someone's home. The fellowship times were all in someone's home. The singing praises to God were all done in someone's home. Life was shared together in homes, and so church and hospitality were inseparable in the early church. You see this in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 47. This is close to where we read last week when we looked at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. But in response to that, here's what the early believers were like. All who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And what happened when they lived this way? They were praising God and having favor with the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being Save. The early church lived out hospitality. The church and hospitality were inseparable. But friends, that was not just God's will for the early church. That's his will for us as well. Go back to verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is his will for me and this is his will for you as well. But we learned something important about hospitality here that again raises the bar a little bit more for us. This Greek word here that's translated hospitality is a, com- is a combined word. It's two words meshed together. The first word is philio. That's where we get the word Philadelphia from. It's a word for brotherly love. But the second part of this word is the word xenos, which is the Greek word for stranger. It's literally this word, hospitality, is philo xenos. It's brotherly love for strangers. It's what hospitality literally means in the way this Greek word is constructed. That means we do not have to know someone well to practice hospitality and to open our home to them. There's an easy danger for us today to have our close group of friends and to have them regularly in our homes and to convince ourselves we're doing biblical hospitality because I've got my handful of friends that are in my home all the time or my kids I'm at Chick-fil-A with a lot also. But friends, God calls us beyond that too to realize that hospitality is not just my inner clique, my inner circle. Hospitality is me welcoming people into my life who I don't even know well at this point. Why? Because as we do that, what happens? We get to know them well. And we get to build friendships through which God grows his church and the church is strengthened. 
It's one of the best champions of hospitality today is a lady I've mentioned before named Rosaria Butterfield. She was an atheist and a lesbian who God drew to himself and saved through hospitality because a pastor and a pastor's wife welcomed this lesbian atheist into their home and shared life with her. And she saw the gospel on display and God broke down the barriers of her heart and Rosaria came to faith in Christ. And she wrote a great book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And I love her term for hospitality because she terms it a little bit different. She calls it radically ordinary hospitality. Radically ordinary hospitality. The hospitality of opening your home and opening your life. And it's ordinary. It's a normal Christian life. You're not doing anything super special. You're just bringing people into your life and living life with them. But she calls it radical because it's been so lost in the Western church today. It is now radical when you see people living out this type of hospitality. Why has it been lost? I can't help but think about the connection back to verse 7. Go back up one verse. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Because I think we've lost our right thinking about God's will, about our lives, about our schedules, about our priorities, what our emphasis should be, and even about our own homes. Because how much do we see our homes as our castle, our place of retreat, my private property, versus something God's given to us to use for His purposes? In her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosaria Butterfield says this, Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as their own, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of the kingdom. That was so convicting as I was thinking on that one this week. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as their own, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of the kingdom. I fear we've lost a lot of biblical hospitality that characterized the early church because we've lost right thinking about God and his will and about community, but even about our own homes and our property. So again, before we go on, I want to ask you, as I ask myself, do we see our time as ours to use how we want, or do we see it as God's that has been steward to us to use for his purposes? Do we see our homes as our castle, our place of retreat, or do we see our homes as a gift from God to use to welcome other people into our lives? Friends, are our lives and are our homes a place, a haven where other people feel safe to come run to, to find hope and to find encouragement and to find help and to find the Lord? So friends, what are we called to do in the last days? We're called to love one another, to prioritize the pursuit of community. How do we do that? Reactively, we forgive. We're eager to forgive offenses and overlook offenses, and we are eager as well proactively to open our lives and homes and bring people along with us. But Peter's not done yet. He's going to raise the bar one more step for us here. That's our third question. What's the attitude we're to have as we do these things? What's the attitude we're to have as we forgive, as we love, as we open our homes and lives to other people? And he uses two words here that raises that bar even higher. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another, notice this, earnestly. We're to love each other earnestly. Now, this is not a word about emotion. This is an athletic term. That means fervency, persistence. I'd have an athlete who's running hard and trying to do the best he or she can do. It's an endurance term, a persistence term. So Peter is telling us here that above all, day by day, keep giving of yourself for the good of another's with great persistence. Friends, it can be wearisome to pursue this. And he says, but press on. Be persistent in loving other people. Be persistent in forgiving. Be persistent in opening your home and your life to other people. Be persistent and doing these things. Keep and keep on doing this type of love for others. But he gives us a second term that shows us our perspective on all this, and that's in verse 9. He says, show hospitality to one another, notice this, without grumbling. Friends, loving other people well, opening our homes is exhausting. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes even, friends, a willingness to be hurt. 
Because you will have people who will come into your home and you will share life with and they'll move away. You have people that you'll walk alongside for years and they'll turn on you and backbite you and stab you and walk away from you. And it will hurt. And the easy question to start thinking in those times, is it really worth it? I spent years with this person. They turned their back on me. Should I keep doing this? And the answer that Peter says is yes, yes, yes. Yes, it may hurt. Yes, it may be costly. But keep showing hospitality to one another and do so without grumbling. If you think about a coin, there's two sides of a coin. If without grumbling is one side of it, the other flip side of that coin is do it with joy. Because if you have joy, you're not going to grumble about it. And if you're grumbling about it, I'm pretty sure we don't have joy in what we're doing if we're grumbling about it. So if you want to think of what he's saying here, he's telling us to show hospitality to each other with joy in our hearts. Finding joy that we have other image bearers of God who are in our homes and we are walking life with joy and getting to share our lives and the things God has given us with other people. Joy in opening our homes to build friendships and relationships and joy knowing we're doing it ultimately unto the Lord, not just for other people. Finding joy in doing to others just a small taste of what God has done in so much more ways for us as well. So what are we called to do? We're called to love one another, to prioritize the pursuit of community. How do we do that? We're eager to forgive and we're eager to open our lives and homes for hospitality. And with what attitude do we do that with? We do it with persistence and we do it with joy. Now, friends, the reality is I am not where I want to be in this area. This text has been so convicting to me this week in terms of the time I've grumbled when I've been exhausted and having more people coming through our house, the times when I've questioned after people have hurt us and stabbed us in the back, and I thought, is it really worth it after we had, oh, this person over so much, and they walk away and won't speak to me now? The struggle to love well when life gets busy. And the Lord's really convicted me this week of I'm not where I need to be in this area. And I suspect it's true for many of you as well that God is going to grow us, not just individually, but grow us as a church in this area. Just in the providence of God and and preparing for this over the last several weeks, several of you in the church have mentioned to me your struggle with finding community and your struggles with loneliness. And I can't help but think it's not a coincidence that the Lord has brought that to my attention in the last several weeks because I think God is trying to grow us as a church in this type of love for one another. To move us beyond Sunday mornings to a place where we really are sharing life and we're loving each other and we're quick to forgive and we're quick to bear one another's burdens and we're quick to get into each other's lives and to share life in homes outside of the building. That leads to my last question for the morning. How do we grow in this? If you're like me and the Lord's convicting you, if I were to be more intentional in sharing life and loving people well and practicing hospitality, again, what Butterfield calls this radically ordinary hospitality, how do we grow in it? Can I suggest several things? Number one, there's several things we need to remember. If we want to grow in this, there's, in fact, there's three things I think if we will remember from Scripture and meditate on, it'll grow us in this. The first of those is we need to remember God's love for us. We've got to remember God's love for us. Friends, if we understand the depth of God's love for us, how can we not extend that same love to other believers who are recipients of it as well? If we want to love others well, friends, it's not going to be because of this white-knuckle determination. I'm just going to try harder this week, and I'm going to grit my teeth and have someone in my home for a meal. That's not what this is about. But if I understand the love of God, how can I not let that flow through to other people? I love what Jesus said in John 13, 34. In John 13, 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Notice this, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And if you think of how did Christ love us, he gave himself for our good. He modeled for us what sacrificial love looked like. Even to people who would betray him and turn on him, he still washed their feet, he still loved them, he still served them, he still taught them, and he tells us to do the same. So first of all, we remember God's love for us. Second of all, remember Jesus' imminent return. Remember the second coming of Christ. Remember this command we're looking at today in verses 8 and 9 flows from verse 7. Verse 7, go back to it. The end of all things is, is at hand. Therefore be, 
Keep loving one another. Therefore, be showing hospitality to one another. These commands flow from remembering the return of Christ because when we remember the return of Christ and how it can come at any point, it reorients our perspective on life. It helps us realize what's important and what's not important. It helps us prioritize the things he's told us are important when we remember his return. So remember God's love. Remember his return. And number three, remember our identity. Remember our identity, that we are strangers in the world. Now, Peter has told us this many times before, but go back to chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Once you were not a people, now this is plural, not individual. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, plural, had not received mercy, but now you together have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, you all, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of flesh which war against your soul. Our identity is that we are strangers. We are sojourners together. Now, many of you know that before I came to Gateway six years ago, I worked with a lot of international students in Auburn. And one thing that always struck me with my international friends, and if you hang out with people from other countries, you'll see this as well, they tend to be very tight-knit groups. When I was in Auburn, the Hindu-Indian community was a tight-knit group. The Turkish scholars who were Muslim were a tight-knit group. The Chinese students were a tight-knit group. Why? Because they knew they were strangers in a foreign land. They knew this was not their home. When they landed in Auburn, as fun of a town as it was, the Chinese students were not at home. They were in a place where people ate different foods and spoke a different language, with very different cultures, very different priorities. And so they bound together and they united. Even with their, some of their political differences within their group, even with some of their ideological differences, the Chinese community became a tight-knit group and the Indian community became a tight-knit group and the Turkish community became a tight-knit group because they bonded together because they were strangers in a land around what united them. How much more so should we as believers unite together understanding we are strangers in this world? If we really remember our identity, that we are strangers on our way to heaven, it becomes much easier to unite with one another. Yet the reality is we're so quick to get offended and assume the worst. We're so quick to look down on people who think differently than us. We're so quick to not pursue a relationship because that person likes a different hobby or has a different interest than us. And we quickly turn and divide when we should be uniting, remembering that we are strangers in this world. When I taught through chapter 1, long time ago, um, there was a quote I shared with you. I want to share it again. One of the authors said this, One of the painful facts of life is that the people of God do not always get along with each other. You would think that those who walk in hope and holiness would be able to walk in harmony. But this is not always true. And you would think that those who walk in hope and holiness would be able to walk in harmony. But this is not always true. From God's divine point of view, there is only one body. But what we see with human eyes is a church divided and sometimes at war. There's today a desperate need for spiritual unity. So how do we grow in loving one another the way Peter's calling us to do here? We remember God's love for us. Friends, we remember our identity as strangers in the world and remember the return of Christ. Okay, remember that. What else do we do? Second of all, can I suggest we pray about it? We need to pray about it and ask God to grow us in this. This is not going to come from us just fixing our schedules and prioritizing to do better at this. This is a heart change. If we struggle to let people into our life, that's a heart change more than a schedule thing. If our schedules are too busy to have people in our home, that's more of a heart thing than a schedule thing. It ultimately, it's the work of God growing us. And ultimately, it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit changing us. You know the text well, but Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. If we want to love other people, where does it come from? It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit dwelling within us as believers who's transforming us and changing us. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy as we bring people in our homes. It's peace. It's patience. It's kindness to the stranger. It's goodness. It is faithfulness. Friends, if we want to live like Peter's calling us to live here, it's going to take the Holy Spirit creating this within us, creating the desires, creating the strength, giving us the intentionality to do these things. So friends, let's ask him to do that. 
What would happen in my life and your life if we began to pray regularly, Lord, grow me in my love for the body of Christ. Grow me in my heart to welcome people into my home. Lord, show me how to prioritize. I'm not juggling one ball of church and community, but I'm embracing a one another life. God, grow me in it. What if we begin to pray that for one another at this church? And pray that we would become a church that really had a one another type of life where we were in each other's lives and moved beyond Sunday mornings to really sharing life together. Let's pray it for ourselves and for one another. And then lastly, how do we grow in this? Just go do something. Just go do something. Hospitality does not take rocket science. You don't have to have a PhD to invite someone to come have a meal in your home. You don't have to know the person well to have them in your home. It doesn't take a PhD to forgive someone who wronged you or pursue getting to know someone in the room you don't know. One of the authors I read this week simply said, the key to hospitality is to begin. I was like, that really just struck me. The key to hospitality is to begin. You don't have to reorganize your entire life for the next 365 days. Find an hour this week and go spend some time with someone you don't know well. This is ultimately what James told us in James chapter 1, verse 22. He tells us to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers also. Just do something. Listen to the word of God and do what God has called us to do. Because he's told us, verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, and to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And so let's ask God to give us grace to be doers of what he said and not hearers only. So let's bring all that together. Here's the main thing I want you to take away from this text this morning. It's quite simply this. Living with the end in view leads us to persistently and joyfully open our lives and our homes to one another. Living with the end of you, remembering the return of Christ is imminent, should change us, should produce in us a persistence and a joy as we open our lives to other people and not live in our isolation that our culture normalizes. This is not based on personality type. This isn't if you're an extrovert, do this. If you're an introvert, you get a pass. This is if you know Christ, this is God's will for you. Think about eternity. Think about Christ's return and let that give you persistence and joy to open your life and your home to one another. Trusting that as you do so, it is God's good will. And God will use our feeble efforts to build up other people, to draw the lost to himself, and ultimately to strengthen his church. All, as we saying earlier, all for his glory. Let's live this week, friends, with the end in view. Trusting God to give us persistence and joy to open our homes and our lives to one another. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you've revealed to us how you desire for us to live. And Lord, we confess, as we've sung earlier, we're weak. Lord, this is not something we can, in our own strength, manufacture. We can't fix our schedules and fix our priorities this week on our own. This is a heart change that I need you to work in me and to work in all of us, Lord. To where we are living not for the here and now, but living for eternity. Where we're seeing our time as not our own, but as yours that you've given to us. We see our homes and our possessions as not mine and my private property, but seeing as things you've given to me to use for your purposes, for building up your church and for spreading your gospel to other people. And so we confess for many of us, this stretches us way outside of our comfort zones, but we know that your will is good. So even, Lord, if it stretches us, I pray that you would give us the grace we need to obey your will. And, Father, for those in our church body who really model this and live this, I pray today you would encourage them in that. They would see this is your good will, and they would be encouraged to not grow weary in doing good. And for those who are struggling to live this way, I pray you would give them that gentle conviction of the Holy Spirit to take a practical step this week as they meditate on your word and pray. Show them something they can do. Show them someone they can pursue this week to grow in a one another type of life. And Lord, in all these things, I pray you'd be growing us and shaping us to be the people you desire us to be, a people who love you and Lord, love others. Just Lord Jesus, as you told us the greatest commandment was. So I ask you to have your way molding us and shaping us and forming us to be the people you desire us to be all for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing the closing song today as a familiar one to you. It's Build My Life. And there's a phrase in here that we're going to be singing that hope will be your prayer today. And that prayer is to lead me in your love to those around me. That's exactly what we're seeing here today. To above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's what we're singing about. Lord, lead me in your love to those around me. Let this be your prayer as we worship him today.
Now, before I pray for us, just where you're standing, would you take a minute and just pray what you've just sung, asking the Lord to give you a heart and a hunger this week for His Word, to see Him for who He is. Would you ask God to grow in you this week a sense of awe and wonder at His deep love for you? Would you ask God this week to give you much grace to grow you in showing love to others just as he has loved you? Lord, you've heard the prayers of your people. And Lord, when we pray your word, we know you're praying your will. So Lord, we ask for much grace this week to love others in the way you've loved us. Lord, we recognize it's an impossible command that we cannot do on our own. So we ask that you fill each of us with the Holy Spirit this week, that he might give us strength and joy and conviction and all that we need to seek your strength and your grace to love others the way you have loved us. So God, would you open up our eyes to see people the way you see people? Would you give us conviction of ways that we're falling short of that? Would you give us encouragement in the ways that we are doing that? And Lord, I pray in the end, that by next Sunday we will see you sanctify and growing each one of us to better love other people well so the church can be what you desire for it to be. And we ask it all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great Sunday afternoon.